It is a joy to celebrate Christ with you this morning. We continue our three-week series on celebrating the incarnation of Christ. Pastor Phil did an excellent job introducing me. Um, my name is Joseph. I am the ministry assistant and pastoral apprentice here at Faith Bible Church. My wife and I have been members of this church for now almost two years. I want to thank the elders for giving me the privilege to preach this morning. We will be looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. As you turn, I hope and pray that you would be captivated by this Lord that Mary sings of in these verses. Please look with me to ch chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him, and from generation to generation he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Beautiful, is it not? A song so rich of theology. This is only possible if the Holy Spirit inspires regenerate hearts that have been transformed by the scripture. I, I have just been blown away with this breathtaking song of hers. This regenerate heart, this transformation is evident in Mary. Now let me tell you of another song. This song um, has been one of my favorites when I was growing up in India. I would hear this song being played every Christmas at my home in India. The song, White Christmas. With, with temperatures above 70, White Christmas was always a dream for us. Now, the song was written by the songwriter Irving Berlin from the musical film Holiday Inn that released in 1942. Since its release, White Christmas has been sung by multiple artists, with the version sung by Bing Crosby being the world's best-selling single with estimated sales of 100 million records worldwide. What had inspired Irving to write this best song? It was snow, because it reminded him of merrier times. Now, I will not, you do not have to worry, I will not be preaching on the significance of Christmas and how many of us find the significance in ourselves. Pastor Justin did that extremely well. He, he showed us that the significance of, Christ, of Christmas 
is not in us, but in Christ alone. However, I want us to see that it is not merely an outward celebration, but an inward response. Irving Berlin, the songwriter of White Christmas, is famously quoted to have told his secretary, I want you to take down a song referring to the White Christmas. I wrote over the weekend. Not only is it the best song I ever wrote, but it's also the best song anybody ever wrote. Man is so full of himself, always considering his ways to be the best. And the society celebrates it. Best football player, the best student, the best coach, the best employee, the best employer, and so on. Why are we so full of ourselves? We always desire to be the greatest in whatever we do. Our passage this morning will orient our hearts to the incarnate Christ, who is the true great one. Luke, who is the author of this letter, is writing this letter to Theophilus so that he and other readers can be assured of what they had heard of Christ Jesus. This great worship hymn of, Magnif of Mary's is called the Magnificat because it begins in the Latin Bible with the words Magnificat anima mea dominum which means my soul magnifies the Lord. The hymn draws close parallel to Hannah's song from 1 Samuel verses, sorry, uh, chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 that Sal read for us earlier. It has also many references from Psalms and the various prophets. Pastor Justin's sermon last week gave us the background to this text. Uh, the angel Gabriel had visited Zechariah and had announced the coming of John the Baptist. Soon after, the angel then visits Mary and tells him of the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Mary rushes to meet Elizabeth, who is the wife of Zechariah, filled by the Holy Spirit. We are told in Luke 1, Elizabeth calls Mary blessed. And this is Mary's response. Look with me at verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Two words that jump out to us this morning are magnifies and rejoices. So what does it mean to magnify something or someone? Magnify means to make something look larger. Mary is not making a small God appear large, like a microscope. She is making much of a big God. Mary had been overwhelmed by God's goodness. After God gave the Ten Commandments, he says in Deuteronomy 6 that his people should love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and strength. When Mary says, when Mary emphasizes my soul, she's referring to her inmost being, including her emotions. This is not merely a lip service. This is Mary worshiping from her inmost being. We are told in the Bible that out of our hearts, our mouth speaks. 
This response is an overwhelming thanksgiving and awe. Mary had experienced God's grace in her life. Notice the verse says, my. This is personal to Mary. One cannot magnify God if we, have, if we merely have the knowledge of God, but we do not know him intimately. We can only magnify God if we know him intimately, if we have a relationship with him. Magnifying God is not a responsibility. It is a response. Who is the object of her magnification? It is her Lord. The word translated as Lord here is Adonai, which means master. Mary's submission to her master is exemplary. Her allegiance to her Lord, 100%. The shame, the rejection that lay ahead because of this pregnancy could have caused Mary to speak ill. But we see she magnifies her Lord. Now let us think about rejoicing or being exceedingly happy in God. Mary says her spirit rejoices in God her Savior. If you are like me, you would be wondering, are not soul and spirit the same? The answer is yes, they are. This is very typical of Hebrew poetry, synonymous parallelism. Look with me, it says soul and spirit magnifies and rejoices, Lord and God. We see several examples of this parallelism in the Psalms. A good example would be Psalm 27.1. Let me read that for you. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the Lord, sorry, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? By using the parallels, Mary is re-emphasizing that all of her is exceedingly happy in God. Her restating the same points out that she is in awe and amazement. It is like that, it, it is, if we had to compare that to our lives, it would be similar to when we look at the beautiful evening skies here at Southwest Florida. We use multiple adjectives to describe the beauty of the skies. Wow, what beautiful colors amazing sky. We are saying the same thing, but in different words. Notice, Mary says rejoices and not will rejoice or rejoiced. This is a continuous present tense. What Mary is saying is that she continues to be amazed by what God has been doing in her and in, his, in God's chosen people. The Christian life is marked with an ongoing celebration of what God has been doing in our lives. Hence, we should not just limit our celebration to the Christmas day or the season. We, just like Mary, we need to be in awe and magnify God for the incarnate Christ forever. We sang that off earlier this morning. When Mary says her spirit rejoices in God her Savior, she is recognizing that her spirit has been made alive by God. She was given a new life. Mary had heard the news about the Messiah's coming, had put her faith 
and had humbly accepted God's will in her life. Mary's faith was not a blind faith. She points out what God had done in her life and in others. We know best, we know someone best when we see their actions, right? We do not base our judgment based on what someone says, but what someone does. And that is exactly what Mary is doing here. She points out all the things that God has done. The text gives us three reasons why we should magnify God. These will be our three points. Magnify God, who shows favor to the humble through the incarnate Christ. Magnify God, who does the unexpected through the incarnate Christ. And magnify God, who keeps his words through the incarnate Christ. My first point, magnify God who shows favor to the humble through the incarnate Christ. This is a key, and so I will be spending a considerable amount discussing these two verses. Please bear with me. As I jump into these three points, let me be very clear to you. The point of this sermon is to magnify God. Verse 48 through 50, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generation will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary was humble. In verse 48, Mary says that God had looked on her humble estate. Mary recognized that she had found favor on accord of a humble condition. Calling herself humble may cause some of us to consider, is she not being prideful? So what does it mean to call oneself humble? Someone wise once said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Consider Mary's humble condition. Here was a 13-year-old teenage girl from a town of no repute, engaged to Joseph the carpenter, even in those days she was not considered by any means to come from a, a family of any repute. The lowliest of lows speak of the downtrodden, the outcast. Mary was one of them. However, instead of pitying on her own condition, she looks to her God. She magnifies her God. She's not acknowledging she is humble based only on her social condition. She is also referring to her spiritual poverty. Earlier we saw she acknowledged God as her savior. This debunks all claims by the Roman Catholic Church who say that Mary had found favor because she was sinless. We see that in our text, that is not the case. Also, consider her awe after being visited by an angel, Mary would have known that angels had visited the heroes of faith before. And now she stood face to face with the angel Gabriel. It must have been a very humbling encounter for her. In humility, Mary calls herself a servant and acknowledges 
God as her Lord. In some of your translation, the word servant would also say born servant. This indicates that Mary knew that one can serve either God, the creator, or the created. Mary chose to be a servant of God. Mary continues by saying, for behold. It's in a way saying, can you believe this? In spite of my humble condition, I will be called blessed. Mary was truly blessed. She knew she had been divinely and supremely favored. She was not referring to a five-star hotel stay and calling it hashtag feeling blessed. As many of us mistake the word blessing or blessed to be. She understood that blessings are not earthly prosperity, but that which draws us closer to Jesus. Mary knew that the blessing that she had received was not, was not an accord of anything good that she had done, but was on accord of what God had done for her. I think we will do well to recognize Mary to be blessed. I think that was Luke's intention. Mary is blessed since she had the privilege of giving birth to the Messiah, an unparalleled privilege and honor that was only given to Mary. Jesus tells us that the humble are blessed in Matthew chapter 5. The humble acknowledge Jesus as their Savior and Lord. In verse 49, Mary says, the mighty one has done great things. We should wonder what, why call him the mighty one and what mighty things is she referring to? The angel Gabriel earlier had told Mary that this pregnancy would be unlike any that she had known. The Holy Spirit would come upon her. As a Jewish young girl, she would have known that the Holy Spirit had enabled in the past rulers like David to rule over the nation of Israel. Um, the Holy Spirit had enabled the prophets to prophesy the word of God. The Holy Spirit had inspired the priests to intercede on behalf of his people. And behold, now this Holy Spirit is coming upon her. A virgin birth was and will always be one of a kind, only a mighty God could do. Mary could say God was mighty one because she had witnessed a 70-year-old baron Elizabeth, now six months pregnant. She was going to be a first-hand witness in the birth of the Messiah, God himself taking on the human flesh and becoming man and dwelling with us. Mary was humble. She saw how insignificant she was and was aware of her insufficiency to save herself. She saw how man cannot save themselves and need the mighty God to intervene. Only a humble person can see, them, can see their own weakness and find God to be the source of all strength. In the second half of verse 49, we Mary says, and holy is his name. This is another way to say God is holy. The angel Gabriel earlier had told Mary 
that the baby that she was going to give birth to will be called Holy, the Son of God. It is as if Mary, after recognizing her humble condition, seeing her own unworthiness, is falling off her seat and saying, can you believe this? This God who is holy would have anything to do with me, a sinner, and would show me that favor? It is as if she is puzzled and saying, what does darkness have to do with light? Sorry, what does light have to do with darkness? Why does this God have anything to do with us sinners? Holy means set apart, something which is special. God is different from us in various ways. One of the primary reasons is his holiness. God's holiness is the story of the Bible. A holy God who lacked nothing created human beings to be in a loving relationship with him. Man rebelled and defiled himself with sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only son to take on human flesh be subject to the law, remain sinless, live a holy life, and die so that whoever repents and believes in him is made holy in his sight. And those who believe him will be made completely holy with him forever one day. Holiness is important to God. God says, be holy as I am holy. Holiness should be important to us as well. Humble people see themselves at the, as the outcast. They see their destitution apart from God. They see God's holiness as a good thing and something to be desired, and, and, to sub, and, and they find themselves delighting in submitting to his laws. In verse 50, Mary points out how God favors the humble by showing mercy to those who fear him. Mary recognized the biggest blessing that she had received was God's blessing. Mercy is defined as the withholding of a deserved punishment. As a Jew, Mary would have been familiar with passages from the scripture, um, especially, say, the second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where God had promised Solomon that if his people humbled themselves and repented, God would be merciful and would forgive them. Mary is rejoicing on account of the mercy that God had given her. She is acknowledging that she has been saved, saved from sin and hell. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Do you remember what God told Adam about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, if you ate of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Adam ate, but still lived 930 years. God was merciful to not put him to death immediately. However, we also see in certain situations like Ananias and Sapphira where God showed immediate judgment. He is merciful and gives most of us the time to repent and turn to him. The Bible is clear. A man shall never experience God's 
mercy if he remains arrogant in the imagination of his heart. But one who fears him shall receive mercy. Fear of the Lord is only possible for the humble. Fear does not strike the right chord, does it? Um, and, and so we should wonder, why should we fear God? What do we fear? Most of us fear snakes, spiders, lizards, the, the loss of job, the loss of health, the loss of lives. My wife, she fears that we will be pulled over because we speed. She thinks I speed. To fear God means to cherish, reverence, and respect Him. Not to be afraid of Him, but to honor Him and lovingly submit to Him by avoiding what is contrary to His will and by striving what pleases Him. Mary feared God, she, which helped her to reverently obey God. She did not fear man for being looked down on because of her pregnancy, but obeyed God, knowing that God was fulfilling His purposes through her. Humble people are thankful people who know God is full of mercy and find themselves beneath the foot of the cross, knowing Christ has paid it all. As good as the previous definition of humble was, I would like to add a little phrase to it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less and thinking much of Christ. I think Christ was the epitome of humility. Remember what was prophesied about Jesus? Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Zephaniah 9, 9. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says, Being in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' humility was on full display from the beginning till the end. He left his heavenly abode so that he could take on human flesh, so that he could die for you and me. Has anyone heard of Samuel Brengel? Samuel Logan Brengel was a commissioner in the Salvation Army. He was once introduced as the great Dr. Brengel. He later wrote in his diary. Listen to me what he wrote. If I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him and helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He does use me, but I'm concerned that he uses me and that it is not of me that the work is done. The axe cannot boast the trees it has cut down. It couldn't do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, and he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only an old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. Samuel was making much of God.
Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15 reminds us that God dwells with the humble. There is no place for the proud in heaven. As Christians, we magnify God by being united to his body, the local church. Attending a church and committing to being a member of the church is our act of humility. We can humbly submit to the elders knowing that they have been given the authority by God himself. We can humbly bear with one another in the church and love when we differ in matters of conscience. We can humbly serve one another, not desiring our own recognition. Pastor Phil earlier prayed for some of those members who have been acting behind the scenes so that you and I can worship God. Humility would also mean we evangelize. Most of us think it is the job of the pastor to evangelize to our family, our friends, and our colleagues. Humility would mean we put aside any fear of man and fear of rejection and trust God to equip us for evangelism. Humbly serving, loving, and proclaiming Christ magnifies God. We have seen how God shows favor to the humble. We will now consider how we can magnify God who does the unexpected through the incarnate Christ. Mary is rejoicing in the recognition of the unexpected things that God has done in her life and in others. Look with me at verses 51 through 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He has sent them away empty. When Mary questioned the angel Gabriel at the news that she will soon give birth, because she was a virgin, the angel Gabriel said, there is nothing impossible with God. In these verses, she sings of this God who does the unexpected. Do you notice the parallelism being demonstrated in these verses? But in this instance, it is contrasting parallelism. In these verses, we see a theme of reversal, complete reversal of the order that man knows. God scatters the proud. God dethrones the mighty rulers. God sends the rich empty-handed. God exalts the humble. God fills the hungry with good things. This is a God who works in ways that are counterintuitive to us. All of us like to hang out with the rich and the powerful, but God exalts the humble. If it was up to us, would we have not we would have not done it this way. A helpless baby born in a manger to a teenager in a town of repute? Would we not have had a superhero to save the world born to a queen in a palace in a major city? In verse 51, Mary speaks of God scattering the proud. When I read that, I am reminded of how God scattered the people who were building the Tower of Babel. 
They wanted to make a name for themselves and were acting in defiance of what God had willed. If you remember, in Genesis, God created man so that he would be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the nations. However, these people, in their own wisdom, wanted to stay together. They sinned in their pride, and God confused the language and scattered them. Pride is the root of all sin. Our hearts do not want to submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, says Romans 8. Fallen man has always exalted himself in the imagination of his heart. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, read Psalm 14. Do you remember King Nebuchadnezzar, the mighty ruler? He missed to acknowledge that all power, all riches to him were bestowed by God. What happens to him later? He loses his mind and starts eating grass like a wild animal. In verse 52, Mary contrasts the mighty rulers and the humble. Rather than being satisfied with comforting the lowly, Mary, God, lifts them up. He exalts them. He celebrates them. At the same time, God shows strength by disrupting the world's power structure, dethroning rulers and humbling the mighty. Those who stand in awe of themselves and their own power will be judged. Do you remember Herod? He was eaten by worms because he had exalted himself to be a god. But if the wealthy and powerful can only see it by bringing themselves down, by emptying themselves, God will save them. When they turn their gaze from themselves and their own accomplishment, when their awe is directed to God, then there is mercy for them too. It would be very easy for us to dismiss and think we are not mighty rulers. I think when we think of mighty rulers, we should consider that all of us rule someone or the other. We all have some position of authority, be it a mom or a dad over their children at home, or a young, an older sibling with a younger sibling, or a boss to an employee. We all have authority over someone. Authority is good if we humbly understand that God is almighty and he is the source of all power and authority. The verse is clear. He brings the mighty low. The ones who do not consider God as almighty, they will be brought low. Verse 53 speaks of the hungry being filled with good things and the rich sent away empty. This leads me to ask, what do we hunger for? Many hunger for power, riches, money, prestige, authority, relationships, love, acceptance, security, health, respect, when does food feel most satisfying? I think the answer is very clear, when we are most hungry. Who is the hungry that Mary is referring to? 
those who hunger after God. Mary says, God fills those who desire him. We will feel empty if we treasure riches more than God, the created more than the creator. The poor in spirit who hunger for righteousness are filled with the Holy Spirit. The hungry who realize their own need and yearn for spiritual food will be filled. Remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man's self-focus reflected his lack of faith and his insensitivity toward God and his neighbor, Lazarus. And again, when the young rich ruler, rich in morals and possession, left sad when Jesus asked him to sell everything and follow him. Mary's intention of referring the humble and hungry is to point out that they are bankrupt. What does one have who has nothing? Hope. This Thursday, I was listening to a popular news channel, and the host said, if we are looking at Washington, D.C. for hope, we definitely will be let down. It's only in Christ, his death and his resurrection, that those who are lowly and humble have hope. Christ did the unexpected in his incarnation. Listen to what the Scottish professor John Murray the, of Westminster Seminary said as he described the incarnation of Christ. The infinite became the finite. The eternal entered time and became subject to his conditions. The immutable became mutable. The invisible became visible. The creator became created. The sustainer of all became dependent. The almighty became infirm. God became man that he may die and by his death destroy the work of the devil and take away our sin. The good news is this incarnate Christ does the unexpected by bringing us to life. We who were spiritually dead. God is the God who does the unexpected. Nothing is impossible with God. How did God create everything? By the word of his mouth. How did the nation of Israel begin? God intervened in a barren woman, Sarah, so that she could give birth. And who rescued Israel from the Egyptian by parting the Red Sea? The answer is God. Who helped the shepherd boy David slay Goliath and lead the nation of Israel later? Again, the answer is God. Who brings the spiritually dead sinners to eternal life? The answer is an emphatic God. So magnify God for the unexpected has been done. Meditating on this truth will serve our prayer life well. As you approach him humbly in prayer, you are magnifying God. Pray knowing that the, that the Lord is almighty and delights in those who hunger for him. Pray boldly. Pray for souls. 
pray that lives will be changed. Pray that God will call his people to himself. Pray expecting the unexpected. So we magnify God who shows favor to the humble, who does the unexpected, and now we will consider why we can trust this God. This leads me to the third point. Magnify God who fulfills what he says through the incarnate, incarnate Christ. Verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary, at this time, along with the nation of Israel, was waiting for the Messiah to overthrow the Roman Empire. They were all looking for a political leader. The Messiah, as the prophets had prophesied, would come to save his people. Isaiah 46, verse 4. But Mary understood that the baby she was carrying was not, was not a political leader, but he was the king of kings. He would rescue his people forever to himself. In these verses, we see that Mary is rejoicing as she recounts God's faithfulness to his chosen people. She credits God's mercy and faithfulness as the reason for the fulfillment of all God's promises to Abraham and his offspring. The faithfulness of God is his trustworthiness a commitment to keep to his promises. The word faithfulness means truthfulness. The clearest demonstration of God's faithfulness can be witnessed when God willingly entered covenant relationship with first Adam, then Noah, with Abraham, Moses, David, and then fulfilling all of them in the incarnate Christ. It may be a good thing for you to go and read the account of Luke. Chapter 4 details how Jesus was in the lineage of all these men. What we notice from the beginning of creation is that our God, out of his overflowing love, is committed to us in an intimate and interpersonal relationship. However, because the entrance of sin in Genesis 3, the people of God did not faithfully keep to this covenant-keeping faithful God. Still, God proves to be trustworthy and faithful to his people over and over again. Mary knew Israel had been faithless, but she knew God had always remained faithful. She knew when Israel called for help, God would not turn his face away. The incarnation was the fullness of God's faithfulness. This was the answer to the promise given over and over again to the nation of Israel. God never forgets, but always keeps his promise. God has entered into a new covenant through Christ. Jesus said, in John chapter 10, he knows his sheep and they know him and he will not allow any to perish. It is because of God's faithfulness 
evident throughout Scripture and demonstrated supremely in the birth and ultimately the death of Christ, that we, a faithless people, can be restored to him. And just as God has been faithful in the past, we can be assured that Christ's promise of returning will surely be fulfilled, and so we wait in anticipation. A thing that I would like you to notice is the use of past tense by Mary. She uses a lot of past tense as if these things have already happened. You must know that at this time, Christ had not yet been born, but she speaks with such assurance. Look with me, verse 51, scattered the proud. Verse 52, exalted the humble. Verse 53, filled the hungry, sent the rich empty. Verse 54, helped Israel. I was encouraged to see how the Holy Spirit had sealed assurance within her. She knew that these things would come to pass. It was a done deal for her. This reminds me of Jesus when he says, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. John chapter 8, verse 56. Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing the fulfillment of the covenant that God had made to him. Mary foresees every promise will be fulfilled in the son she will bear. As a young child, as I was growing, I, I would love listening to my dad sing Blessed Assurance, and I am so thankful that we sang Blessed Assurance. Mary here is fully assured by the Holy Spirit that all God's promises will be fulfilled in the incarnate Christ. A missionary to Africa told the story of a middle-aged woman. We'll call her Yolanda. Yolanda lived in a French-speaking nation in, in Africa, and she had been reached by the gospel. Yolanda was blind and could not read or write. One day, Yolanda approached this missionary and asked for a French Bible. Puzzled, the missionary gave her the French Bible. Yolanda's request, please underline and highlight John 3.16 in red and mark the page. Curious now, the missionary followed Yolanda one afternoon. What Yolanda was doing is she would go and stand outside a, a school and wait for the boys to come out. When the boys would come out, she would ask if they knew to read French. If they said yes, she would point out the verse and say, do you understand what it means? And she would share the gospel right there. The missionary goes on to say that many lives were saved through Yolanda's ministry. And out of them, 26 moved on to become pastors. But then, this was not always the case. The missionary asked Yolanda if she had any struggles in the past. And the 
she did say the first 10 years of her 25-year ministry, she was mocked, ridiculed because she was blind and she was speaking of a foreign god to them. So the missionary asked Yolanda what kept her going. Yolanda simply smiled and said, God is faithful. He allows us to be faithful. Brothers and sisters, all material things that are today will pass away tomorrow. The year 2020 has been very evident of that. Jobs lost, houses lost, health lost, lives lost. But we can be assured of one thing. There is one who does not change yesterday, today, or tomorrow. We can magnify this God for his faithfulness, who never leaves us or forsakes us. And if we are in Christ, we can be faithful because God is faithful. We can faithfully love and submit to our spouses. We can faithfully raise children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. We can faithfully proclaim to our lost friends and family, living faithful lives as believers magnifies God to the world around us. Have you experienced this grace of God to break into a worship like Mary? We were created to magnify God. A secular popular song has the following words. Treasure, that is what you are. Honey, you're my golden star. You know you can make my wish come true if you let me treasure you. The singer is treasuring her lady. We all magnify someone or something. The error in that is that we make a microscopic person, job, or a thing and elevate them to a level of God. Sin plagues our lives. Sin is anything that degods God. What I mean by that? It displaces God's glory. We need to know that the best the perfect one is God alone. Any desire of us to steal that glory and praise is not just futile, it is foolish. Mary recognized she needed a savior. She was magnifying and rejoicing because she had received God's grace. Some of you here may have read the Bible and other Christian books. Some of you may even have attended the church for a long time and possibly attended the youth group for a long time. But you do not know this God intimately. Please do not put your earbuds and be deaf to this God. In a recent sermon, Pastor Justin spoke of an amazing truth. Jesus is not a doctrine to understand, but a relationship to enjoy. Knowing of Jesus is different from knowing Jesus as your Lord. If we are not in an intimate relationship with God, we will never enjoy him. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need a savior. 
And the joyful message of Christmas is just that, a God rich in mercy sent his son to take on flesh so that he could die and pay the price for our sin and shame and guilt. If you do not know this joy, let me encourage you with the words of a song that we often sing. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. The first step to this kind of joy is a plea for help, an acknowledgement of your own moral failure and an admission to our own insufficiency. It sounds very countercultural, doesn't it? Christians, let us magnify God. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. Magnifying God is nothing else than rejoicing in God in his glory. But if God made man to rejoice in this, then he made man to be happy. What Edward was saying is that God created man to be, to magnify him. God cares that we are happy. Our joy is full and complete only in him. I pray that as we celebrate Christmas that we do not stop with this, with that day or the season, but that this continues. I pray that our magnifying would not be limited to just the Sunday gathering, but that we would magnify God in the meditation of our hearts and that it would be witnessed by how we interact with the watching world.